So, Lord, shine on in. Bring these dead bones to life. Father, I love that song, and I love to hear Jess sing it. And It's our prayer. Help us to preach in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but they set it on a stand so that everyone can see and see by it. Uh, so let your light so shine before men. We are to be the light of the world, uh, the light of this world. And, and so we obviously need to get our act together. N number one... We need spirit. You know, in high school, we always had a spirit section at sporting events. And, and so we would chant, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And then it would psych us up, you know, to win the competition. Sometimes Christians, they walk around like they're just in mourning. So number two, we need to display our joy. We need to display our courage. Let's stop being so meek, you know. Let's stop it. Let's stop it. More cur We need to claim our rights, number three. Number four, clearly state that we are right. We have the answer. Number five, we need to stop tolerating sinners. The Bible's clear. The Bible's clear. Some things are just wrong. Number six, we need to be relevant. I mean, we should be the best musicians, the, the, the best businessmen, the best athletes, the light of the world. Number seven, we must win the culture war. Number eight, we must become the moral majority. You know, if we're not vigilant, before we know it, the moral majority will become the persecuted minority. Number nine, we must demand respect. Muslims blow up buildings when people disrespect Muhammad. I mean, why don't we blow up buildings when people disrespect Jesus? Like, you know, like when people draw pictures of Jesus disrespected and reviled and naked and weak and spit upon and, and like displayed for the whole world to see on some sort of stand or something. If we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, hadn't we better get our act together, church? That's why I am introducing Peter's plan for maximum engagement. We need better marketing. Instead of God is better than you thought, how about the sanctuary is better than that old church that you were going to? Uh, we need better management. M. So I've taken Ken Callahan's 12 Keys to an Effective church and Mark Milbridge's six stages to building a contagious church and Rick Warren's the purpose five points for the purpose driven church combine them together with Bill Hull's four principles of the disciple making pastor uh, combine them all and produce the dynamic strategy for salt and light management for global conquest 27 key disciple making principles for building the contagious purpose driven church I will take 10 leaders who then train 10 other leaders in the 27 principles who then train 10 other. Do the math. 10 times 10 is 100. 100 times 10, 1,000. 1,000 times 10, 2,000. 100, 100. 000. Through this dynamic, disciple-making exponential strategy, that 10 years, that's 10 billion people, global conquest. We can do this. Because I am an expert. I have a Master of Divinity degree. Peter's plan for maximum engagement, MME. Mm, 
Now, let's back up everything I just said with scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. <laughs> you are the salt of the earth, says Jesus. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the salt of the earth. I think it's just interesting he didn't say you should be the salt of the earth. Or try a little harder to be the salt of the earth. Get a little tastier, a little, little saltier. However, he does ask, what if salt has lost its taste? Well, if salt has lost its taste, it's not salt. So if you lose your taste, maybe you are no longer you, but, you know, like a false you, an imitation you, an act. And maybe this is also worth asking, who's doing the tasting? Every Jew knew that all the sacrifices were to be seasoned with salt. They knew that God was doing this tasting. Romans 12, 12, 1 and 2, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, there's something that God can't taste and God doesn't know, and that's an act, a lie, a false self, a religious self. Well, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if that salt has lost its taste, most Jews got their salt from the banks of the Dead Sea. They just go down and pick it up. And the salt often had a, a lot of impurities. If the salt leached out of the salt, you were left with dirt or earth or, or, or clay. You know, Adam was made of clay and something else. Well, anyway, they would keep the salt in an earthen vessel. And scripture says that we each have an earthen vessel. The point isn't to forever keep the salt in the earthen vessel. You shake the salt to get the salt out of the salt shaker. That's the point. Well, you think, you, you think, I guess, that you are an earthen vessel. But Jesus says you are the salt. You are the salt of the earth. Then verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It's interesting because when he said this, they could probably see Tiberius, which the emperor Tiberius built on top of a hill so everybody could see how Romans lived. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or a bushel, but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And now that raises a bunch of questions too, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't say you should be, could be, or might be the light. But you are the light. So, if you try to be the light, maybe that you isn't you and isn't the light. Like if you try to be salty, you've lost your flavor and you don't know who you really are. Jesus says you are the light of the world. Yet, yet, yet we all know Jesus is the light of the world, right? John, John 8, 12, the light, the, the one light. So maybe we're the light like a lamp is a light. The lamp is a container that radiates 
the light. So, so we're like earthen vessels containing light and, and radiating light through the cracks and holes in, in our vessel. Uh, this is an oil lamp from, from Jesus' day. It was an earthen vessel containing oil. It, it was lit and placed on a stand for all to see and for all to see by. And Jesus doesn't say try to, to shine your light, but, but he says let, let your light shine. To let something happen means to stop trying to make it happen or not happen, instead get out of the way so it, it will happen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your, not to you, but to your, your Father. Let it shine so men can see your good works. And in the next chapter, Jesus says this, don't practice righteousness to be seen by men. So let it shine so men can see, but don't let it shine in order to be seen. In other words, your, your right hand shouldn't even know like what your left hand is doing. That is shining light may have a purpose, but it's not your purpose. So it can't be for you a strategy, like a means to some other end. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your kalos Ergon. It, it literally means your beautiful works. And, and give glory, let them see your callous are going to give glory to your Father in heaven. What works are, are these? That people would see them and give glory to our Father in heaven. I mean, when Christian experts market, manage, and engage culture with political power, do people just, oh, glory be to God, that was beautiful. You know, I think abortion is, is just a deep tragedy. For mothers and for children and for society. And I think scripture commands us to treat foreigners, sojourners, as our own citizens. But when Christians march on Washington demanding rights, whether they be for undocumented aliens or unborn children, when, when we march from the left or the right, are those the kind of works that, that the world just gives glory to God in, in heaven well, maybe, maybe, kind of, sometimes, but is it groups demanding rights or more like one person surrendering rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, emptying himself and taking the form of a slave? Now, now don't get me wrong. I, I think it's good sometimes to, ma to march. I'm not saying it's bad to march. And we live in a democratic republic, and, and so you should all vote, debate, and legislate, but is that the beautiful work that Jesus is talking about? Jesus says, let them see your good, kalos, beautiful works. Let, let them see them. Not that you might do, could do, or will do, but, but do do. In other words, these people are already doing it. Who are these people that Jesus is talking to on the side of the hill? Well, let's back up and read it in context. Matthew chapter 4, verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan is beyond Israel. And the Decapolis are the ten Greek cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And now they're, they're in Galilee. 
and Galilee is populated with fishermen and peasants. I mean, these people are the normal, unremarkable people of this world. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, his disciples does not refer to the twelve because he hasn't even named all of the 12 yet at this, at this point. And Matthew 7, 28 still refers to these disciples as the crowds. See, disciple just means follower. These are the people that literally just followed pe Jesus. They just followed Jesus up this hill. I took a picture of the hill. This is uh, on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. This is what the hill they think it was. And you see, it's just not that impressive of a, of a hill. I mean, nobody told them that they, they had to do it. Jesus didn't say, if you ascend the great mountain, you will be the light of the world. No, they, they just followed him up the hill. They were just interested enough in Jesus to follow him up that hill, sit down, look at Jesus, and listen to Jesus. Next verse. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. You know, blessed means happy. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You, poor in spirit, meek and mourning, hungry, you are the light of, of the world. Wow. I mean, Jesus can really mess up a, a great sermon right when you get it going, you know. Years ago at Penn State, a Jewish grad student converted to Christianity, and one of his professors, a Christian, Tony Campolo, a friend of mine, suggested that he go to this large evangelical church that was nearby. After a time, he asked him about his experience, and this young man said, you know, if you put together a committee and ask them to take the Beatitudes and create a religion that contradicted every one of them, well, you'd come pretty close to the stuff I'm hearing down at that church. Jesus says, blessed are the, the poor in spirit. Literally, of them consists the kingdom. As if the kingdom was a city on a hill made of living stones, poor in spirit, or at least that had been poor in spirit. I, I suppose you could argue that they become the light of the world after they receive the Holy Spirit, like on Pentecost or something, but Jesus doesn't say that. Well, if you're poor in spirit, maybe you long for the Spirit, and even that is a work of the Spirit. And blessed, it means happy are those who mourn. Recently, uh, one, someone in our church wrote me this, this note. I have recently realized that despite my choleric demeanor, I'm not really an angry person. I'm a sad person. 
Upon this realization, I felt waves of relief flow over me because I know my truest self is not angry and bitter. That's just another mask. The truest, deepest part of me that Jesus knows intimately is just sad. And he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I literally feel him entering into my sadness and helping me bear it, not take it away because it is my place of weakness and where I am weak, he is strong. When I read that, I was just so happy. It's like sorrow and joy are are not opposites. More like sorrow is a container created for joy. So blessed are those who mourn the emptiness of this world because they long to be filled and they will rejoice when they are filled and they see the whole world filled with God. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Someone said they better inherit it because that's the only way they're going to get it. But maybe that's the only way you can get it. Inherit it. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it, it must mean that you're not right, but you want to be right. You hunger and thirst for it. You know, like as if you could eat it like bread <laughs> or drink it like, like wine. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You can't receive mercy if you think you don't need mercy or you won't confess that you're a sinner. And by the way, mercy doesn't tolerate sin. It destroys sin because it loves sinners. Blessed are the pure in heart. Kierkegaard wrote this, purity of heart is to will one thing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, says Jesus. Why shall they see God? Because God is the only thing they want to, the only thing they will to see. That means wherever they look, they look for, for, for God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's the verse that Carl preached about last week. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Literally translated, of them consists the kingdom of God. You know, we're so worried about protecting the kingdom of God from persecution. When the kingdom of God is constructed of those who have been persecuted... Trying to save the kingdom, we prevent the kingdom. I mean, that's almost like diabolical, isn't it? I mean, maybe we ought to turn around and say, get behind me, Satan. Blessed are the persecuted, says Jesus, and the reviled. We love experts because they're very rarely reviled. The people on that hillside, however, were not experts. And they could not rely on experts. And you know the people on the hillside were not management gurus. They actually had no organizational structure. Jesus appointed the 12, and as far as we know, that scheme was never duplicated by one of his disciples. 12. And and you know, none of them were very good at marketing. Probably uh, most of them, or all of them, were illiterate. And they were not connected. They were not well connected to the movers and the shakers of the day. However, we, we live in a market society with a management economy run by experts. The experts are paid to do what they do. They're mercenaries. Hundreds of companies are, are companies. They, they, they sell basically 
the same product. So, so the product is not the point, but how well you manage the product and your employees becomes the point. And in a competitive market-driven commercial economy, everyone experiences what sociologists call a depletion of meaning. In, in other words, we're constantly bombarded with messages like this. Coke is the real thing. So real thing was kind of depleted of its meaning. Volvo can save your soul. So salvation is was well, kind of depleted of meaning. Love is endless, like, like McDonald's. So when an expert like me in a well-managed environment says God is love, Jesus is salvation, the real thing was well, just kind of depleted of meaning. It doesn't mean so much. Well, who could say the very same thing and have it mean a whole lot? Jesus continues. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if that salt has lost its taste, no longer poor in spirit, no longer meek and, and mourning and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, no longer mercy. How then, if it loses it, how will its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand, and it gives light to all the people in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then he refers to his Father as their Father. You know, in just a few paragraphs, he's going to say, when you pray, and then he commands them, you say, our Father, our Father, Abba. I mean, it's like these people have already passed through judgment. I mean, these people sound pretty saved. And yet, check, check this out. Not one of them even knows what we would call the plan of salvation. Not one of them has prayed what we would call the sinner's prayer. Not one of them have confessed that Jesus is the Christ. They don't know he's the Christ. It's still going to be like a couple years, or what the Christ even is, a couple years, till Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. So, so what do these people have going for them that others do not? Because Jesus said they were the light of the world. What do they have going for them that other people? Why are these people the light of the world? Of the world. All we know about these people is that, well, they like Jesus. <laughs> Period. They like him. And there may not even be a whole lot of like. I mean, the like may just be like the size of a mustard seed. They just like him enough to drop what they're doing, walk up a hillside, sit down, look at him, and, and listen. The liking may only be the size of a mustard seed. But Jesus seems to think it will grow. They like him. Gandhi was a Hindu who, who almost became a Christian, but he was kicked out of a, a worship service because of the color of his skin. It was probably about the color of, like, Jesus' skin. And he wrote this. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. 
I was just reading a biography of Albert Einstein. Once he said this to, to a, an interviewer, I, I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous, that means light emitting, the luminous figure of the Nazarene. That's Jesus. I just wonder if Albert Einstein and Mahatma Gandhi were sitting on that hill. Are you sitting on that hill? I bet you are. I mean, I hope you didn't come here just to get your butt out of hell and into heaven. I hope you came here because at least just a little bit, you like Jesus. John 3, 19, Jesus says this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so it can be seen that his, that his deeds have been done by God. This is the judgment. God is light and Jesus is the light of the world. The people on the hillside came to the light. The people on the hillside couldn't make themselves the light. They themselves were a deed done by the light. So they simply liked the light, looked at the light, and then the light was reflected in their eyes. That light judges, heals, and makes all things new. When you look at people, and you see Jesus? And Jesus said, whatever you do to the last and the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. When you look at people and see Jesus, the light reflected in your eyes judges people and tells them who they really are. When you look at your enemies and you see Jesus, the kindness in your eyes burns evil and begins to set those people free. Now I say that not as just like some kind of nice poetic thought, but knowledge that I've gained even from praying with people with demons. But you see, it's true, not just in those situations, but in every situation. Your old self, your old self cannot judge people, save people, and make them new. But the light in your eyes can and does when you look at people and you see Jesus. In Luke 11, Jesus says this, your eye is the lamp of your body. When it's single, it can also be translated healthy. When it's single, your whole body will be full of light, like a, like a lighthouse. The pure in heart want to see one single thing. They want to see God. And they do see God, even in the last and the least of these. They are the light of the world. So what, what do these people on the hillside have going for them that, that, that others do not? They like Jesus. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. My father is your father. And I, when, when I remember that God is a father, things, well, they kind of start to make sense. Things that made no sense to others made perfect sense to me and meant everything to me as a new father. This amazing event happened with all of my children. And, and it was Mother's Day, so some of you moms may remember this, but it happened with all of my children, but I particularly remember the, the first time. I was holding my baby boy on the couch. He was like in his diapers, you know, and I was feeding him Cheerios. He's kind of bouncing on my lap. And so it was pretty gross. I mean, if you've been in a, seen that, you know how gross it is because the Cheerios get all soggy and slobbery and 
and, and, and gross. It was super gross, soggy Cheerios spit in a, in a world of culinary imperfection. He, I remember he was just gumming away, you know, when all at once he kind of stopped and he looked at me. And then he reached up and he pulled like a soggy spit laden Cheerio from his mouth and he, he put it in my mouth and he smiled. And all at once, I realized what had just happened and I couldn't contain my joy because I realized my baby boy, my son sees me. He sees me and he likes me. Not just the provider, not just the creator, not the one that makes everything work. He sees me, he knows me, and he likes me. He really likes me. This is silly, but I felt like this. And I think maybe Jesus felt like this. But I want to say thank you to you. I haven't had an orthodox career, and I've wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time I didn't feel it, but this time I feel it, and I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. You see, your Father in heaven really, really, really likes you. And it thrills him to think that maybe, even just a little bit, you like him too. I think Jesus looked out at these uncouth, slobbering, soggy peasants on the hillside and thought, you like me. You like, you came to me. You like me. You like me, I am the word of the Father spoken into the void to create you. Long have I waited for you and you like me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am God in flesh, love poured out, and you like me. You see me from the bosom of the Father and you like me. You have loved my appearing. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is at the end of his ministry. He's poor in spirit. He's meek. He's battered. It's been hard. And he writes this to Timothy. I am being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, as he will all who have loved his appearing. See, the judgment is his appearing. The light having come into the world. The peasants on the hillside loved his appearing. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the ruling liberal elite and the popular conservative religious leaders, the religious politicians did not. They did not like that Jesus loved their enemies. They wanted him to torment their enemies. Sometimes I wonder if we Christians have really loved his appearing because it seems that we want him to appear a different way the second time around. The first time he forgave his enemies, he died for those who reviled and persecuted him. The second time, it seems we want him to torture his enemies and never, ever, ever forgive them and never, ever, ever descend into the darkness and even try to save them. 
getting into weird territory here, and I, and I don't know quite how to say this, so I struggle to say this, and so I may not be saying this quite correctly, but I think my biggest disappointment in life has been the realization that many, many Christians sort of maybe kind of just don't like Jesus. <laughs> like, hardly at all. And sometimes, maybe much of the time, I'm one of them. And now you may say, well, that doesn't make any sense, Peter. If Christians don't like Jesus, what do they like? If Christians don't like Yahashua, God is salvation, what do they like? If they don't like absolute unending mercy and grace, absolute love and God is love, what, what, what do they like? Why would they go to church? If they don't like the light, what do they like? Well, maybe they like the earthen vessel. That is the work of their own hands. Not grace, for which God gets the glory, but their own works, for which they get the glory. Not Yahashua, God is salvation, but I am. Not the, the light, but the vessel. M-M-M-E, me! Me, my marketing, my management, my expertise, my ability to take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fashion myself in the image of God. My ability to build the temple, the city, and take the land. You know, they, they crucified Jesus because they perceived him to be a threat to their earthen vessel. That is the stone temple that they built. The city that they built, the land that they thought was their own. They perceived him to be a threat, and he was, but not in the way that they expected. He destroyed the temple with love poured out, and he filled a new one on Pentecost with holy fire. People, poor in spirit, were flooded with his spirit, and the new Jerusalem began to come down. Not a church built by me, but a living body constructed by God with people that just really, really, really like Jesus. Worshippers. That's what they're called. Now listen, nothing's wrong with marketing, management, and expertise. In fact, in some form, each one of those things is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The problem is that we confuse them with the Holy Spirit. We confuse the container with the light. Nothing's wrong with stone temples until we confuse the earthen vessel with the glory that fills them. Maybe nothing's wrong with your flesh until you think that it can save you. Nothing's wrong with the law until we confuse it with love. And God is love. And God is light. So Jesus says, let your light so shine before men. Well, how do we not let it shine? Maybe by trying to, to, to be the light when we're just trying to be the light, when we just have to look at the light and Reflect the light. And maybe by confusing the things we can do with the things God does do. Maybe by confusing our earthen vessel with, with the light. So, so we don't shine the light. What do we do? We display the earthen vessel. So people see our marketing but don't see any meaning. They see our management but they don't see any life. They see our expertise but not the Savior. Listen closely. You can build huge, just huge programs, buildings, religions, cities, and nations that way. 
but not the church of Jesus the Christ. To testify to the Savior, you must testify that you, your, your old self, is not the Savior and not the life and not the meaning. To testify to the light such that men would see your good works and give glory to God and not to you, your earthen vessel must be broken. You know, we ask, what kalos ergon, what kind of good work or, or beautiful deed was Jesus referring to on the hillside that day? Well, I think it's hugely significant that there's only one other place this phrase appears in Matthew, kalos ergon, other than here. There's, a, there's only one kalos ergon recorded in Matthew's gospel, and indeed all of the gospels, and in all of the gospels in some form it's recorded in Matthew 26 just days before he's, he's crucified, this, this woman takes an alabaster flask of pure nard, worth 300 denarii. That's like an entire year's wage. It's an earthen vessel filled with priceless oil. And she does something highly inappropriate and uncouth with it. She breaks the earthen vessel and pours the oil on Jesus' head. And according to, to John, she even washes her, his feet with, with her hair. She's poor in spirit. She, she's mourning. She's meek. She's hungry and thirsty for righteousness. She's merciful and, and pure in heart. She's a peacemaker, and she will be persecuted and reviled. She's salty. She's the light of the world. Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, this story shall be done of her. She has done a kalos ergon, a beautiful thing. She's seen by men, but she doesn't do it in order to be seen by men. She herself is a broken vessel. She's lost herself and found herself in a river of liquid light, a river of spirit. She really, really, really likes Jesus. And Jesus has always really, really, really liked her. She's the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, the city set on the hill, the church, mother church, his bride that gives birth to life in this world. And Judas, Judas, the consummate religious politician says, why the waste? Why the waste? This is a waste. He couldn't even see it. Why the waste? This money could have been sold and given to the poor, and, and could have been. You can build quite a lot that way. Programs, institutions, buildings, but not, but not the new creation. Well, you know, I'm an expert that manages an institution and markets a ministry. So, sometimes I do a bad job. With others' help, sometimes I do a, a good job. But you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Sometimes people ask, well, what's your evangelism program? You are God's evangelism program. You are the missionaries. You're the missionaries. You. This institution is just a salt shaker. And, and you're the salt. You are to be spread around. If you're here because... You, you like Jesus, then just be yourself wherever you are. 
That is like Jesus wherever you are. Don't, don't try to be the light. The real you, the true you, is the light. You just didn't make that you. you. You don't need to market, manage, or rely on experts. Don't try to be religious. In other words, don't try to get your act together. Don't be false. Just like the light. And you'll reflect the light. Sometimes with a smile. Sometimes with a tear. Sometimes with a word, or maybe even words, you'll become a peacemaker. Last week, Carl quoted Matthew 5, 5 and talked about the lack of peace in Ferguson, Missouri, at Pine Ridge Reservation in the city of Old Jerusalem, and in our hearts, because we are all somehow, in some way, probably related to one of those places. And so what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, you know, you can talk politics, and politics matter. They really do. They matter. You can talk politics if you want to, but talking politics is like arguing over the babysitter, quite, quite literally. Politics is all about legislation. And that means law. Galatians 5.24, Paul writes that the law was our babysitter until Christ came. When the kids were little, I might have argued with Susan about which was the best babysitter. You know, which one would let them stay up to this time or that time? Which one would enforce the law and were the laws good or were the laws, laws bad? But I knew that only our love poured out would shape our children's hearts. Jesus, you know, lived in a highly charged political environment and he managed to infuriate every politician on the left and on the right. I mean, when they came and they tried to make him king, he, he ran away as if to say, if I were that kind of king, I couldn't be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Politics is about legislation. The light is grace. Absolute, unending, relentless grace. So what does Ferguson need? What does Pine Ridge need? What does old Jerusalem need? What does your family need, your husband need, your wife need, your kids need, your school need, your business need? Answer, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You, as a living, sacrificial presence of the body of Christ. Now, you probably can't go to all those places, but God may be calling you to one of those places. Let's say you go to Ferguson. You know, you can't judge Ferguson, save Ferguson, or redeem Ferguson. But go there worshiping Jesus, and the light in your eyes can and does. Go there and look for Jesus in the eyes of insecure and frightened black teenagers. And then look for Jesus in the eyes of insecure and frightened police officers. Let yourself be broken. And let the light and the love spill out of your earthen vessel. Go to Pine Ridge and wash some feet. And, and you go, I, will, will I make, well, you might make some peace in, in your own heart. Go to Bethlehem and love some terrified and angry Palestinians. Then climb over the wall into Jerusalem and love some terrified and angry Jewish Zionists. And now you may think to yourself, okay, great. What good will that do? How will that help? What difference will that make? Peter, if I do that, I could get crucified 
should see it. The new Jerusalem. The city of peace. Adorned as a bride for her bridegroom. The prince of peace. And the light of the world. And so he took bread and he broke it. Saying, this is my body. You know, he had an earthen vessel. This is my body broken for you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant. Something spilled out. This is the covenant in my blood. Spilled out, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He is the light of the world. And in the morning, he will be placed on a stand for all to see and for all to see by. The stand is called a cross. And from that cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's poor in spirit. He mourned, he was meek, he hungered for what? For our righteousness. He cried, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was merciful. Into your hands I commend my spirit. He was pure in heart. It is finished. He's the peacemaker called Son of God. The reason that you're here right now at peace with God. He was persecuted for the sake of your righteousness. His earthen vessel was broken and love spilled out. It's how he makes all things new. He's not just the way to heaven. He is heaven. And so this is the judgment. Do you like him? I just saw you come forward to the light, even if he didn't come forward. He still really, really liked you. And I know some of you personally, some I don't know, but, but I would say this with everyone that I, they look at, I see in this room that, that I know, this has also been my experience. I, you like him. You like him. Now, now, I know there's a part of you that maybe doesn't like him. That's called sin. <laughs> and there's another part of you that does like him, and that's called righteousness. It's his righteousness growing in you. You like him. And so listen closely. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So at lunch today, if, if the person next to you says, God, I'm so damn depressed. I think God hates me. Well, at that moment, something in you will want to try to judge them, save them, and redeem them. You can't. But the light in your eyes can. And so I don't know exactly what that looks like for you, but, but I know it means testifying to the light that you know. Maybe it's turning to them at that point and just saying, no, that's not true. I, I know this. He likes you. I don't know how to explain the dinosaurs on the ark. I don't know who you should vote for. I, I don't know what church. I, but, but, but he likes you. You like him, and you see that he likes you. You're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel, and you'll become the gospel. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you'd like to stick around and have coffee, um,
The coffee's over in this corner, okay? So we're playing Find the Coffee at church today. 